0: You are now listening to Bookish, The Canon Continues, the podcast that's dismantling the sacred-secular divide with your host, Michelle Collins. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bookish, The Canon Continues. I am your host, Michelle Collins, and I'm here today. I'm going to be discussing a book on my own today. Um, I'm going to share a secret with you. Every time I sit down in front of this microphone, whether it's by myself or with a co-host, I hesitate for quite a long time. I have a hard time hitting the record button. And the reason seems silly and yet it is somehow compelling. I'm constantly afraid I'm not up to this task. I'm constantly worried that I'm going to choke. And so as I hit that record button, I always feel a little bit sick to my stomach. and so very nervous. Now I can have a conversation. Uh, I'm a good talker. I can fill space. I can do all those things. And yet somewhere deep inside of me, there lives this doubt that I'm up to this task. Uh, In the course of my writing, many of you know that, of course, I'm studying for my doctorate in psychology. And uh, I've done some writing here and there. Um, I just finished writing a book that's going to be published later this year. I don't have an exact date yet, but all throughout that process, I struggled so very much with the idea that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't up to the task of writing, that nobody would find it uh, palatable, or that, God forbid, somebody would tell me that I had no idea what I was talking about, even though what I wrote about was based on my own personal experience. So somewhere in that process, I did, of course, some reading and some researching and some studying, and I came across a term that at the time I had not heard before, and so I had to spend some time looking into it and trying to understand what it meant. Um, The term was imposter syndrome. And of course, because I'm studying uh, educationally for my doctorate, I picked up my handy diagnostic manual, the DSM-5, and I went to look for it. And lo and behold, imposter syndrome is not a diagnosable anything according to the DSM. It's not mentioned. And so then I was somewhat confused because there seems to be quite a bit of research associated with it or studies associated with it. There seems to be a lot of conversation about it. And almost without fail, if you describe the experience to someone, they, or it's been my experience anyway, that they say, oh my gosh, that's me. And so as I read about the process or this phenomenon, I couldn't help but notice the similarity, similarities to what I feel and think often. And uh, so I decided I wanted to do a little more study into this. And of course, being a reader, I went and found some books. I have some audiobooks, I have some paper books. Uh, I've listened to some different podcasts on it, and I've actually discussed the whole thing. Um. On the other podcast that I co host, Mental, with my co host, Seth Showalter. Um, So I decided I wanted to discuss it here because the book I have on it was very helpful to me. It provided a lot of insight and understanding. And as such, I thought I would pass that on. And yet I still find myself sitting here feeling woefully inadequate to the task and somewhat self conscious about trying to explain something that is so very personal. Um, So I'm just going to jump into the book, and I'm going to hope that as you listen along, you'll be able to hear uh, the facts and not my insecurities. (laughs) Um, And who knows, maybe you'll be sitting and working on your own insecurities with regard to the subject matter. So the book I'm actually using is called Ditching Imposter Syndrome, How to Finally Feel Good Enough and Become the Leader You Were Born to Be. I don't know most, so much about the leader part. That part was included in the book. Um, and, it, and, you know, I read it, it was interesting, but I was much more interested in the actual phenomenon itself or the syndrome itself. Uh, the author's name is Claire Josa, which is J O S A. Uh, and apparently, she's done quite a bit of uh, study into this area. She actually uh, makes the point that she uses a lot of performance psychology in regard to discussing this. Uh, as well as neuroscience, and she calls it demystified neuroscience uh, to help you understand what it is. She also says that she's a big proponent of ancient wisdom from things like yoga and meditation. And so a lot of the ways that she gives to work through imposter syndrome revolve around these subject matter. Um, she actually has a background too, and I find this interesting. She has a background in neurolinguistic programming. She's actually a trainer for that. For many, they may not know what that is. That was something I also had to find out uh, a lot about. And I discovered that a few years ago. I was speaking at an event and I had a gentleman approach me afterwards and ask me how much training I had had in neuro linguistic programming. And I looked at him very confused and said, I don't even know what that is. I've had no training in it. And he laughed and he said, Then it's a natural talent for you. Um, And so as I studied it, I realized it is. It basically is connecting with people and being able to speak to them. from a perspective that touches them emotionally or personally, Um, even though you may not know that much about them emotionally or personally. uh, I tend to call that empathic ability. I'm sure other people have different terminology for it. Anyway, I found it interesting that she was uh, well-versed in this as well. Um, So I just kind of wanted to open up. She talks about uh, imposter syndrome being a silent epidemic. And I think that's a very apt description. Uh, as I said, or as I mentioned a few minutes ago, when I try to describe this to people almost without fail, I they respond with, oh my gosh, that's me, or I've experienced that, at least on some small level. But more often than not, they are convinced that describes them to a T. Uh, so she asked the question at the beginning, and I kind of had to highlight it because I thought it was a very telling question. Um, It is, do you ever worry that they'll find you out and realize that you don't belong here or that you're not up to the job? Now, of course, that can be just self-doubt. We all struggle with self-doubt from time to time. But imposter syndrome goes a little deeper. Basically, what it says is that I may have all of the training, all of the accolades, the degrees, the accomplishments, the certifications, what have you. And yet, somewhere inside of me, I'm still convinced that I'm fooling people with my expertise. Um, often, according to the research that's out there, you find that people in high high positions, CEOs, uh, highly educated trainers, instructors, um, people like this, actually struggle very much with this, uh, and they feel as though their accomplishments are built on the idea of luck, or. Um, being in the right place at the right time, but certainly not associated with any kind of expertise on their part. Even though, as I said, they may have all of the determinants that say, yes, you are an expert in your field or you are degreed or certified in your field, they still are struggling to feel that. Now, I had an interesting experience with that when I was, it's been quite a few years ago, been 20 years ago now, I started a business. My business is over 20 years old, and I'm good at my business. I'm good at what I do. And that makes me feel funny to say, but I am. Yet somewhere along the way, I felt as though I didn't really have the educational chops uh, to be good at what I do. So I went back and got a degree. Uh, My first degree was in accounting. I have a bachelor of science degree in accounting. Um, And I had this idea that it would suddenly make me feel legitimate, Um, it, it would lend that air of credibility behind my name. Now, I'm not saying that education doesn't do that, but I'm saying that if you don't feel legitimate all on your own, that that's not going to help you very much. And that's what I found out. I still struggled with, do I feel legitimate in my business? I now have this degree behind my name, but does it mean anything? Well, it does. But in all honesty, the experience was probably more important than getting the degree. Um, however, I decided, well, that just means I don't have enough education. So I went back and got a master's in business administration. Um, again, thinking this would be the magic pill. I was wrong again. Now, that's not to say I don't enjoy my education, that I don't um, find value in it. I do 100%. I'm a, I'm an education junkie. Anybody that knows me will tell you that. Uh, but The problem was not the lack of education. The problem was inside of me. It was the belief that somehow I was fooling people and that I really wasn't as good at what I do as what they thought. I still struggle with that. It's 20 years, still struggling with that. And yet I know that, and it's been told to me very recently by quite a few of my clients, we don't want to lose you. You're very, very important. So I don't say that to say, oh, look at me, I'm all that. But to show you that, yes, I'm capable, I'm, I'm educated, I have all of the, the qualities and requirements to be good at my job, and yet inside of me, I still feel as though I'm just kind of fooling people. So I don't know, I, you know, I always want to say, well, maybe that's not everybody else, maybe it's just me, but it's not. It's a lot of us. It's a lot of us that sit and struggle with who we are, and are we okay? And so this book, actually, she goes into a lot of stuff. So I'm just going to dive in and kind of share with you some stuff that she says. Um, She has this quote at the beginning. I don't know how I got to be where I am, but I hope no one finds me out. Everyone else has got their stuff sorted, and I'm the only one that feels like this. Well, that's what we think. It's just not true. Um, We all are actually feeling a lot of the same things. Uh, So I highlighted a section here. She said, each person who struggles with imposter syndrome has a story with a variation on a theme of this theme that she's outlined, the idea that we're not enough. Uh, Maybe it was the promotion that we now regret not going for because we didn't think we were sufficiently qualified. Um, Maybe it was being overlooked for a dream opportunity because we'd spent decades attributing our outward success to luck or timing or our team rather than our own talents. Or maybe it was the time we had a brilliant idea, but we didn't speak up in the meeting, leaving someone else to suggest one that was pale in comparison to ours, and they got the praise and the credit. So it almost sounds as though poor self-image is at work here, and that may be a portion of it. But as I said, poor uh, poor self-image doesn't do justice to what this feels like. Most people with a poor self-image Actually, struggle to accomplish anything because they don't think they're capable. This goes further and says, "I've done the work. I've I've done everything that's required to be good or to be an expert in my field, and yet I still feel like I'm a fraud." So it's a little bit further into this idea. Now I do believe that a poor self image goes along with this. Um, so we don't want to say that that's actually not the case. Um, so. She goes into what the experts say about it. So she gives uh, a definition here. Imposter syndrome, what is it? Um, The term imposter phenomenon was coined by two American psychologists, Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes in 1978. They described it as an internal experience of intellectual phoniness that those who feel fraudulence and worthlessness have in spite of outstanding academic or professional accomplishment. So kind of this, I mean, I've pretty much already said that now you're probably tired of hearing it, but at least you're well, you're well-versed in what the definition is. Um, so she goes on and talks about, um, they wrote, there was two other researchers, uh, Harvey and Katz. They wrote a book in 1985. It's called, if I'm so successful, why do I feel like a fake, the imposter phenomenon? Uh, and they, and they actually stated that there had to be three things, uh, you know, involved in this, you had to have all three of these things to actually be a victim of imposter syndrome. Uh, the belief that you got where you are by fooling other people, the fear of being exposed as an imposter or a fraud and the inability to attribute your achievements to any kind of internal qualities, like, you know, any of your abilities or your intelligence. So they were saying, Hey, all three of these have to be evident for you to really be somebody that's struggling with imposter syndrome. Um, she disagrees. She says it happens anytime there's a mismatch between who you see yourself currently being and who you think you need to be to achieve or create a goal. So even though there's evidence that you're more than capable, she's saying, even if you feel like, oh, I'm just a fraud, even if you're only suffering from one of those, in her estimation, you are still struggling with imposter syndrome. So it's it it gets kind of interesting as, as you get into it. Um, It's As I mentioned earlier, it's not diagnosable per the DSM, the diagnostic manual um, that is used in in the field of psychology. Um, She says that the main and most shocking conclusion of any of the research associated with it is that a huge proportion of people are struggling in silence, uh, men and women, by the way. Um, And it's affecting their performance. Uh, It's also affecting their mental and emotional health, relationships, and most often even their careers. and yet it's not something that's widely known or discussed. Um, so as I said, it's not diagnosable. It's not a clinical condition. We say we say syndrome. Um, it, she also uses the term phenomenon. But it's not something you're going to go sit down in front of a psychiatrist or a psychologist and say, here's what I'm suffering from. And they're going to go, oh, let me diagnose you with this. It's not that kind of thing. So for a lot of people... In the field of mental health, we find this often, people are afraid to be open and talk about what's bothering them because they're afraid of the stigma or being labeled as having a mental health issue. So if this is what you're struggling with, you don't have to worry about that. Nobody can diagnose you. <laughs> I'm kidding. We all still worry about the stigma of it, but no, they can't diagnose you with it. So it's not something you have to be you know, worried about from that, from that perspective. Um, Imposter syndrome isn't a predictor of performance. Um, there are articles that claim that, but it's just not. Um, it's not actually even this. And I, I I think people have said this, well, at least my ego is kept in check, but that's not true either. This is not about being humble. This is not about checking your ego. This is about literally a failure to understand your value in what you do in your field. And so that's something we have to be very careful about because what happens is it starts leading into something like shame. Um, and I you know, I was listening to a podcast today myself, and I heard two terms that are used almost synonymously, and yet they're very different. Um, and those two terms are guilt and shame. We tend to group them together, and yet they're very different. Um, guilt is about our actions, but shame is an identity word. Um, the difference being, and I know many of you have listened to Brene Brown, and she actually discusses this. Um, uh, guilt says, um, I stole something." And shame says, I'm a thief. It, so it's taking action and going into that, making that action your identity, which is demoralizing and pretty um, devastating to us more often than not. Shame is a huge problem for people. So it's when we keep it secret and struggle in silence with imposter syndrome. Now we're adding shame into this. Um, but it's ironic because the shame happens because we don't tell anybody, but we don't tell anybody because we are sure that we're a fraud and that somebody's going to find out. So it's this self perpetuating cycle that seems to push us toward this silence. And obviously, that is one of the worst things for us. Um, going a little further in the book, and I'm, I'm going to skip through, there's a lot of information here, and I really feel like most of it is very valuable. However, I want to hit the high notes, obviously, since we don't have a lot of time. Um we're going to talk about the four P's of imposter syndrome. Uh you know, everybody likes to have, you know, their little the four P's or the seven R's or, you know, go to any church and listen to a sermon. The pastor almost always has some kind of catch like that. But so we're going to use that too. And she uses it in the book. The four P's of imposter syndrome. Um, so the first one that she talks about, and just so you know, when I went through this and when I had a discussion with somebody else on this, I identified with all four of these. Now that may not be the case for every person, um, but it is for me. And so it, I, f- I felt more and more demoralized as I read it. I was like, God, I'm a mess. Um, these are all me, but that's not the case. These are just things that almost all of us deal with. So, um, the first one I'm going to talk about is paralysis. Um, you know, the idea of uh, well, I don't know, I've always used the little phrase um, "paralysis by analysis." Many of us are very structured or analytical people, um or we know very structured or analytical people who literally can't act. They can't move forward because they're so busy analyzing everything from every perspective possible before they make a decision. Um, and ironically, Uh, As I mentioned earlier and have said before, working on my doctorate in psychology, uh, I come from a field of accounting and business. And so a lot of people miss the connection there. But the reason that I actually went into studying about psychology was because I was finding so many times the, the clients and the business owners that I was working with were struggling to be successful. And I thought there has to be a psychological reason behind this. And there is. There's lots of reasons. There always are. Um, but one of the things that I found and I came across with some of my own clients was this idea of paralysis. Um, they were incapable of making decisions that needed to be made in a timely fashion because they needed to analyze everything. Now, I don't know in their case, whether they felt like a fraud. Um, I can guess that maybe there was some of that involved, but regardless, the idea of paralysis in business is still very, it's it's devastating to business. And this is what I found. Um, with the clients that I worked with that struggled with this, they had a very hard time, as I said, making a decision or even making a decision in a timely manner. And, and oftentimes in business, there's things that come up that have to be decided you know, very quickly. If you spend too much time paralyzed, unable to make that decision, you negatively affect your business and the people that work for you. And that's what I saw over and over. Um, but I had to analyze myself in this as well because I do struggle with this. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this recording, I struggle to hit that record button because my mind is already, you know tripping through why I'm not qualified or you know how I'm gonna mess it up. Um, I do the same thing in business to the point of not being able to answer an email because I'm struggling with what if I don't answer it correctly? So I have to be very cognizant of my own inadequacies as it pertains to this, or I negatively affect my business. Um, so again, you can see why this could be very detrimental to career association, things like that outside of relationships and you know all of those things. Um, so it can be very damaging. So yeah, paralysis. So I don't know. I'm hoping that there's other people that can identify with that. I mean, I hate that other people do. Um, but it's it's a big struggle. Uh, so one of the second Ps, and this is another one I really really struggle with and identify, and I've identified with this one for years. Didn't realize it was pertinent or that it had anything to do with this until I started studying this. But the idea of procrastination. Now there's a lot of people that procrastinate. Um, I happen to be a pro level procrastinator, um, even to the point of sometimes recording my podcast. Uh, now. A lot of it is because you have a lot of things going on in life. There's, you know, you have demands on your time and sometimes we overcommit ourselves. I'm very bad about that. Um, but the reality is that oftentimes we do so because we're incapable of moving forward. We have to have that stress associated to the action or we're not able to actually act. Um, I've joked about this for years. Of course, I've been in school for ten over 10 years now in uh, advanced education and I don't think I've ever written a paper prior to the day that it was due. Um, and my resu- you know, my results have always been positive, which was of course you know confirmed my idea that this was the best way to do it. Unfortunately, procrastination causes a lot of issues with stress. Um, Any time we put our, ourselves psychologically or mentally or physically in in undue stress we create uh, body chemicals, cortisol, adrenaline, things like that, that actually have a a chemical effect on our body. An overabundance of cortisol actually is very detrimental to your health over the long term. And that's why stress is associated with things like heart disease and cancer. So we really have to be very careful um, with the amount of stress that we put ourselves under. And so procrastination is one of those stress inducers that a lot of people actually struggle with. And I've read books on procrastination for years, trying to figure out the fix for it. And it wasn't until I read this that I realized procrastination was just a symptom of a bigger problem. And that's why I was struggling to control it because I wasn't really getting to the root of the issue. Um, So, all right, how many of you sit around and wait to the last minute to do something? And then when you get a good result, you feel justified in waiting. Come on, I know there's more than just me positive of it as a matter of of fact. Um, But again, in any kind of entrepreneurial situation, this can be very devastating. In our relationships, this can be devastating. Um, if we put off getting together with people that we care about, um, the the response to that often is negative, uh, which is understandable, uh, but it also is hurtful because it, it leads people to believe that they're not important to us. So this is something that has to be considered and really worked through um, so that you can stop the detrimental effects that it has in the many different areas of your life. Uh, The third P, perfectionism. How many of you are perfectionists? I have been a perfectionist my entire life. Um, It's setting up standards that are, of course, almost unable to be reached and not only holding other people to those standards, but holding yourself to those standards, which again induces a lot of stress into our life and really gives us a very difficult time with producing good results, um, another thing that happens with perfectionism is often, as I said, we set up these these standards that we're trying to live to. And if we should happen to hit that standard, we immediately detract from it and say, "Well, it was luck, or maybe I didn't set the you know I didn't set the standard high enough." There's always a reason um, that we've decided that, of course, I it wasn't me being good enough. There was some outside influence because I'm not perfect and I need to be. Uh, i've also identified and i don't know if this is a real thing or not but it's it's certainly how i've identified for a lot of years uh, a defeated perfectionist and what i mean by that is again that's my term i don't know if that's an actual term but it's one that i've used um, where i will be disinclined to attempt something because i don't feel as though i will do it to the standard that i want to do it so why try well that's disappointing because then we miss out on doing some things in life that possibly we would do and maybe even do well um, because we're afraid. Uh, I have a a belief somewhere inside of me, and I don't know if this is true or not. Um, I really feel like there's a lot of people that struggle with athletic performance that it's because of this idea. Um, They self-sabotage somehow. And I'll tell you, I, I say that from personal experience. As somebody who is working in an athletic endeavor. I'm a bodybuilder. I'm working towards, um, competing on stage, which is, you know, horribly frightening to me and, uh, difficult. What I have found is I can do all of the work physically and I can do it well. Um, my, my eating can be on point, my water consumption, my sleep, my stress levels, my cardio, my workout, everything can be functioning. And yet somewhere mentally I will self-destruct, um, and we call that a lack of willpower. Often, in in you know, in my case, it'll be like, oh, uh, oh, I blew my diet. Well, there was no reason for me to do it except that maybe subconsciously I was trying to take myself out of contention. And again, this is all supposition on my part. Uh, me trying to self-analyze and to figure out why I do the things that I do. But I think it's a feeling of I can't be perfect, so why am I? Why even try? And. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to perform that way, and yet I think somewhere inside there is that um, that propensity to act in that way. So perfectionism can be very upsetting, and again, this is one that can have very big detrimental effects on your relationships. Um, if you're holding people to a standard that's impossible for them to achieve, it it demoralizes them, but it damages relationship. And I think back now, because of course my children are all grown. Um, but I was, I was a difficult mother. I, I had great high expectations for my kids, and I actually believe to some degree that people live up to the expectations that you set for them. However, if your expectations are incredibly high to the perfectionistic level, it's doubtful that your children are going to meet that. And so if you're in a constant state of disappointment with them for failing to live to your standards, you're telling them that they're not good enough. You're you're messing with their self-image, which is of course damaging. And again, uh, looking back at my parenting, I see some evidence of that uh, with my children. and it makes me so very sad, you know that that possibly I carry some responsibility for that. Um and we've had those conversations. i I do go back and have those conversations with them, but it's a damaging thing to live with. Um, and it's. It makes me feel very sad. I mean, I, I got all these instances running through my head right now as I'm thinking about it. Um, so I'm going to go on to the next one because <laughs> I'll ruminate here for a while. The last one, of course, uh, not everybody is this, uh, but people-pleasing. Uh, I'm a very big people-pleaser. I want people to be happy. I don't like confrontation, although I have really bad temper. And if I do get angry enough, I don't have a problem being confrontational. I just don't anticipate it. I don't sit around and hope for it. Um, certainly. And so she, she talks a little bit about this people pleasing again. It, it's almost like a learned stress response. Like, um, she talks actually about the sympathetic nervous system and this fight, flight, freeze response. Um, People-pleasing doesn't actually fit into this, into those. The other three do, um, but this one really doesn't, but it's now being recognized almost like complex PTSD. Every time there's a small trauma involved with um, people-pleasing or any of these in quite, in all honesty, we actually do a disservice to ourselves. We actually induce trauma on ourselves. And anytime you induce even small trauma over and over and over, it becomes something, uh, akin to complex PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and so, yeah, we have this idea that we have to make everybody around us happy, um, which often means that we don't get to be who we want to be, uh, because we're so busy trying to be what everybody else thinks we should be or what we think everybody else is thinking we should be. So if you have any kind of problem with any one of these or any combination of these, um, it's probably a good idea to have a discussion with somebody about that because, while you know I'm, I'm speaking very lighthearted about this syndrome, this can be very um, damaging to an individual. It it does have a disruptive effect on our lives or can. And it is something that should be discussed. Uh, so when I say that it's not diagnosable and a psychiatrist isn't going to say anything about it or a psychologist, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be discussing it because it is still something that is detrimental to mental health and definitely needs to be discussed. Um, so again, let's talk a little bit more about, she goes into the cost of imposter syndrome and it. Again, I think I've kind of mentioned this already, but let's go through it again. Uh, it it pretty much trashes your productivity and your performance uh, again because you're struggling with procrastination or paralysis or any of those things. She goes back to the four P's and said, "Hey, these is this is where these start playing in." Um, you know, you can try all the tried and true methods, you classic time management techniques, or you know, um, you know fixes for. Procrastination or anything. but as I mentioned, if imposter syndrome is the deeper issue, then those are just symptoms. you're just putting a band-aid on a problem. And so you really have to get more in depth. Um, and she makes the claim and it's it's a dramatic claim, but i I think to some degree, this is relevant uh, that ditching imposter syndrome makes it makes the difference between you surviving and thriving. And yeah, we all have that survival, you know mechanism within us, but shouldn't we be thriving? shouldn't we be you know, completing our the things that we want to do, shouldn't we be successful and enjoying that success? Um, so it definitely is something that can interrupt productivity and performance. And of course, she's speaking a lot from a business perspective. I, I'm tending to put this on a lot of different levels, but it certainly is um, very relevant to business. Uh, and it doesn't matter what your business is or what your job is this still can have a negative effect on it. Um, And we think I'm thinking about that from like an employee perspective, but if you're a, you know, a manager or a boss of some sort that is struggling with this, that can make uh, the people that work for you pretty unhappy as well, especially if you're a perfectionist. Um, It also can stall personal and professional development. And we kind of discussed that already. Um, but it keeps you from moving towards the goals that you have for yourself because you're so concerned that you're not going to be good enough or that even though you've attained some expertise within the subject matter, that somebody's still going to come along and tell you you're wrong. Now, let's be honest. You and I both know that all you have to do is put out an opinion and it doesn't even matter what the opinion is. Put an opinion out on the, into the universe on social media or on the internet some in some form or fashion. Guaranteed, somebody is going to disagree with you. So, we really should just get past that fear because that's going to happen. But it doesn't mean that you don't know your stuff. It doesn't mean that you don't have the expertise or the credentials behind you for your opinion. It just means that somebody disagrees, and that somebody may not have any educational information um, that pertains to the subject matter. Uh, I was chatting with somebody today who was struggling with how they handled a situation, and they said, you know, I I had to apologize, and it kind of it made me angry. And my response back to them was angry. And I said, "Why did you have to apologize?" Well, because you know it upset people. I said, "Wait a minute, did you speak from a an educated perspective? This is your realm. This is the field you work in. Did you speak from an educated perspective?" Well, yes. Then why do you feel the need to apologize to people that do not have the same education because they disagree with you? So I, I don't know that that's a product of uh, imposter syndrome. I will say, however, that I have a strong inclination that it is That's somebody that feels as though what they s- have spent their life studying and doing is not good enough. And while the people arguing with them may have points to be made, they may have, you know, a valid concern. If they've not studied it or done the work, they don't have the same perspective and it doesn't mean yours is wrong. So again, sorry, got off on a tangent. <laughs> But I find that to be true is that there's always going to be somebody that disagrees with you. That cannot be the reason that you feel like you're a fraud. Uh, If you've done your due diligence and you've done the work, then your opinion is certainly valid on the subject matter, regardless of what subject matter we're discussing. Um, So anyway, going back, she makes the point that imposter syndrome actually has a very detrimental effect on your personal and professional development. And I think that was a good example of it. It, At least it was for, you know, in my estimation and having that discussion today, um, I felt like that was something that um, was holding somebody back. Um, You know, there's a lot of advice out there for how to deal with imposter syndrome. You can look it up. There's a lot out there. Uh, Because it pertains to negative thinking, you know, immediately people want to say, well, if you just are positive, well, that's a lot of times easier said than done. Um, So we have to be careful about that. And especially as it pertains to anything, you know, mental health or we get into addictions or anything like that. um, Helping somebody with imposter syndrome may mean that you are, you know, delving into those areas, or it may mean that you yourself are experiencing, uh, you know, mental health crisis or some form of addiction or something like that and trying to deal with how you feel about all of this. So another thing that imposter syndrome actually does is it, it kind of triggers burnout. Um, again, going back to the idea of trying to be good enough, constantly striving to be good enough for uh, for somebody else, um, actually puts you in a place where you mentally and physically and emotionally burn out, um, again, stress related illness. So it's, it's kind of a, a cocktail of, you know, Workaholic professionist perfectionistic tendencies, <laughs> um, and I own all of that by the way. Uh, I have all of those things, and I am now that I'm much more aware of them, I am trying very hard to you know put put practices in place that are actually helpful for that. Um, so one of the things that she discussed in this book and and I kind of really liked this section um, she talks about the inner critic. Now everybody has an inner critic. Um, That's that little voice that constantly is picking you apart, telling you you're doing everything wrong. Um, And I have shared before that when I'm writing, I actually hear a voice inside of me and I called it my internal editor. Um, And again, I'll say, I've said this before. I'll say it again. My internal editor is a bitch. She is never happy. She's a taskmaster. She's a slave driver. She, never lets me feel as though I've done something well. Um, As I mentioned earlier, my my book is finished and it's been sent to the publisher. The publisher has accepted it. um, And now I've had to start sending it out. I I sent it to my very good friend, Matthew, um, as he agreed to write the foreword for it. It took me days to send it to him. Uh, Partly I did forget, but more importantly, I was struggling with allowing him to read it because I'm positive that the feedback I'm going to get is this is horrible. <laughs> I've also sent it to another very good friend, a couple of very good friends, and I'm waiting with, you know, cringing, you know, cringing disbelief that it's going to be good news what they think about it. And of course, now it's time to also send it out for um, to get other people's oh what's the word I'm looking for? It just went out of my head. Uh, I want them to oh, endorsements uh, to send it out for endorsements, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Who do I want to send this to? Because, oh my gosh, if I send it to other mental health professionals uh, or people that are in the mental health field or that are dealing with religious deconstruction, uh, since that's my subject matter, they're going to pick this apart. It's going to be horrible. And so I'm struggling to send it out um, because that inner critic is inside screaming at me that this is not good enough. And uh, so it's taking everything inside of me to do that. Um, so those of you that listen that are interested, the book is on religious deconstruction. If you are, It's my personal experience, but it's from a psychological perspective. And uh, if you're interested in reading it and endorsing it for me, you can let me know. Um, and I'll cringe a lot, but I'll send it to you. Um, but anyway, let's go back to the book that we're talking about here. Um, so this is like having a conversation in your head. And we all do that. We all have those imaginary conversations. Um, but your inner critic actually comes from the semi-subconscious, right? It's, your, it's a conversation you're having in your head. Um, it can be words. It can be images or physical sensations even um, or some kind of combination. Um, it's a running commentary on the world around you, basically. Uh, it's a dialogue of habitual thoughts. That's what she calls it. And I like that description because that's what's happening. It's a constant, a constant dialogue running in my mind of the thoughts that I already have about myself. Um, the problem with that is if we get into neuroscience and brain science, um, those conversations are creating neural pathways. So you are literally digging a ditch into your brain of, these, of this criticism. And so it can be very detrimental and difficult to break that habit and to get out of that mindset, um, but it is possible. Uh, so, you know, you have this little voice in there. Some people, you know, often in movies, you'll see it, the devil on one shoulder, the angel on another, and there's an argument going on. Well, that's kind of, that's the inner critic basically. Um, so what happens is your, your self-talk becomes very, very important. Now, of course, this is something that's been discussed, you know, in psychological realms for a lot of time in life coaching realms. Um, in therapy, that that secret power of self-talk? Um, what are the things that you say to yourself when nobody else is listening? Overwhelmingly, I have found in conversations with others that that self-talk is almost always negative. Uh, very few people are sitting around with positive self-talk going on. Um, we're all sitting revisiting our, our faux pas, our mistakes, our uh, where we're deficient uh, our failures, we're reliving them over and over. And uh, we kind of let it run wild in our mind. Um, but it's basically the expression of your subconscious. So it, it's it's automatic. There's not much we can do about it. I mean, we have to be consciously aware to do something about it. Um, it's not just going to magically fix itself. But it definitely, there's a link between how you think and your emotions and basically even down to your body's uh, physiology, um, which are all of course associated with the, aton- uh, the the nervous system. And so a lot of stuff is involuntary. That's why I'm saying you have to get very conscious about this stuff to really make any kind of change. And um, so she kind of goes through some early warning signs and I wanted to just kind of go through those really quick. Um, she I'm going to read this section. Uh, There's a thing in engineering called gain. It's not about getting stuff. Um, it's about what gets amplified in a system. So, like a soundboard, the gain on a soundboard or something. So, what's being amplified? Um, she says, "I used to live in a very old house with a straw hat or a roof thatch. You know, and like a, a straw roof or whatever. It was so old that it was already a hundred when Henry VIII was crowned." Uh, It was listed in so many directories of interesting old houses that it wasn't uncommon to look out of my bedroom window to find an elderly gentleman or three pointing geriatric cameras at her house from across the road. Interesting. Um, But so she talks about the noise, the the noise that's coming. I'm going to go back to this because I'm probably not explaining it well. Um, She said, engineers call this outward voice noise. It's the stuff that gets in the way of the outcome that you want. So basically gain is everything that's outside of you. It's all the excuses that we use to not take personal responsibility for something. So as you're thinking about things like this, um, you need to ask yourself some questions, right? So let me find her questions here because I thought this was interesting. Um, It's going to take me a second. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, okay. So maybe I'm not going to find it, but she had a, a list of questions in here that basically, uh, if I remember one of them correctly was think about something that you've wanted to do and now tell me why you haven't done it. List five things, five reasons why you haven't done it. Almost without fail, you will always find something outside of yourself, um, to just, dis- to distract or detract from what's really going on. What's really going on is, is a level within you that's not capable of getting there yet. And yet you're finding these reasons outside of yourself. So again, you're slapping a Band-Aid on something and you're saying, well, here's the reason, instead of going to the root issue, um, that maybe you just are unclear or unsure if you're capable. And again, at the expense often of having spent a lot of time preparing yourself in some form or fashion to be good at it, you are negating the process by blaming something outside of your ability. Um, so it she talks about a couple ways to actually um, she calls them four emergency stop buttons or early warning signs of imposter syndrome. So she said one of her suggestions is to keep a wins file um. You know, it's like a list, or you know, keep pictures or or something like that. But basically, when you when the doubt comes up, then you pull out these wins and you remind yourself of when you've succeeded, um, without excuse, without saying, "Oh, well, it was luck" or "It was because somebody else helped." But the wins that are wholly attributable to you, period. Um, Shasta talks about thank you letters and praise, um, and that's to yourself. It, it's okay. To be happy with our accomplishments and to praise ourselves for a job well done, um, it—I think many as of, many of us have been taught that that's somehow egotistical, and we're supposed to be humble. Um, but if you have accomplished something, you should be happy about it. You should be proud of your accomplishments. So she actually has something here. She calls this, and this is from her personal background. She calls it the woolly jumper test. I'm not sure what a woolly jumper is, but I think it's probably like some piece of clothing. It's what it sounds like. Um, and I think she's British. So I think that's some of these terms are a little confusing because of that. But basically um, her grandmother had given her this item and she said you know she would try it on and it it cut it threatened to cut off blood supply she was uncomfortable in it so her her point here is when imposter syndrome comes up put it on for a minute and evaluate whether it's something that's accurate or not you know that idea of judging versus evaluation in judging we're coming to a conclusion in evaluation we're just looking at everything And trying to get all of the information. So she's saying do that so that you are able to actually, with credibility, talk to yourself about what's actually happening. Um, And then she says you can hit the reset button by taking a minute. Um, Basically, it's taking 60 seconds without hesitation to speak to yourself on a subject. Now, it's difficult to do. It's interesting, but it's difficult to do. Um, so if you're interested in it, you should read the book. She goes into detail on that. Uh, I'm going to leave that for you because I'm running out of time. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how we overcome or how she talks about overcoming imposter syndrome. As I mentioned, she talks about judging versus evaluation. Um, we have a tendency to judge ourselves and to come to a conclusion that we're not good enough or that we're stupid or we fall short or whatever. Instead of saying, "Okay, let's evaluate the situation. Do I have all the information?" Um, you know, and and going through all of it to to make sure that we're coming to a sound mm-hmm. judgment rather than just jumping immediately to something that's probably more emotional mm-hmm. than it is grounded in anything academic, so to speak. Um, comparison, she warns of comparison, and I, I really have to say that this is something I find incredibly important to remember. Anytime we compare ourselves to somebody else, almost without fail, we will find ourselves lacking. So we have to be very careful. Um, I think comparison can be a good motivator, but only when it's used in in very small amounts. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, my acad- or my athletic pursuit, of course, is going to be judged on a stage, which means I'm going to be compared with other people. But the reality is that the day to day changes are just. A reflection of me versus me, not anybody else. And so I have to do that very carefully to make sure that I'm not looking at pictures, I'm not looking at other people and going, why why even try? I, I, f- I fall short. Um, but rather, I'm just needing to be a better version of me today than I was yesterday. Um, so comparison is something that's very detrimental to us, so we have to be very careful with it. And um, One of the suggestions that she makes, and I have found a good amount of success with this in my life, um, are are positive affirmations. Now, I know a lot of people struggle with affirmations. It feels fake. Uh, It doesn't feel like it's doing anything. I've said all these same things. I worked with a life coach for a while that had me doing affirmations. I'm still doing affirmations. Um, And I still find days where I'm like, this is stupid. It doesn't work. But they do. You just have to give it time. But basically, it's coming up with positive I am statements that are specific to things that you're trying to be or to change in your life. Um I often use an example that somebody presented me with, a gentleman who was a smoker, wanted to quit smoking, and had tried everything. He had tried all the the you know the the nicotine patch, the classes hypnotism. nothing was working. And uh, he had somebody tell him one day, I want you to repeat to yourself every day, numerous times, I am a non-smoker. And he laughed. He said, that's ridiculous because I'm sitting there smoking. And they said, it doesn't matter. Just keep saying it. So he thought, well, this is silly, but I'm going to do it. And every time he said it, he felt like a fraud because oftentimes he was lighting up while he was saying it. And then he said he noticed one day, it he, he wasn't consciously aware of it all along, but one day... He said he looked up and realized, I don't want to smoke, that he had a cigarette and decided, I'm not lighting this up. I'm not a smoker. And he said it stopped him and he thought, wait a minute, when did I change my mind and decide I wasn't a smoker? And he doesn't remember exactly when it happened, but it happened. It's because the the affirmation was working subconsciously. And that's what they do. So it's a matter of practice for a while, even through the feelings of being uncomfortable, so that you allow the subconscious work to happen. Again, saying those things out loud, writing them down. And my life coach had me not only say them every day, but I had to video myself saying them so that I could hear it. And then I had to write them so many times with my left hand and with my right hand. So my entire brain got involved. And as I said, I felt silly, it was time consuming. I struggled with it, and yet I did find great value in it. Um, At the time, one of my affirmations was, um, writers write, and you are a writer, so you write, which sounds like a word puzzle. Um, But I wrote it all the time, and I was, of course, very mired down in writer's block at that point. I couldn't finish what I was writing. And I found after a certain number of weeks, all of a sudden I woke up one day and I thought, I want to write today, and I sat down and I wrote for three hours. And... I fully attribute that to that reworking of my neural pathways through positive affirmation. So definitely something to look into. I know a lot of you are going rolling your eyes and going, "Yeah, yeah, positive affirmations—that's the big deal." There is sound that it's sound advice, whether we feel like it's working or not. Um, she also goes into the idea of forgiveness. Now, again, this is going to lean more towards. I mean forgiveness is universal don't get me wrong but it's something that we often hear in religious circles that we need to forgive. Well in this case we're not only forgiving others but we're forgiving ourselves where we fall short. Um, we have to we have to be merciful to ourselves and that's often very difficult. We are often the hardest critic on ourselves. Um so she brings up the idea of forgiving not only others but yourself. Um She has some quotes here that I really liked. Uh, You can't create a new future while you're still telling yesterday's stories, and that's where forgiveness comes in. Uh, This one's an old one. Everybody knows this one. Resentment is like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to die. You're only hurting yourself. Um, No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And I think that's something that we really have to struggle with. Uh, Again, somewhere within there is a hidden victim mentality idea. Um, well, I'm inferior because this person, well, you're allowing it. You have to stop allowing it. And that I'll tell you right now, when I went through that with my life coach, it pissed me off to no, to no end. Uh, I argued with him over that for quite a while. I got very angry with him over it. And eventually I came to understand he's right. Um, yes, bad things have happened. Yes, I've been victimized in my life. Um, but I do not have to remain a victim. Uh, I can step outside of that and say, how do I start changing my thinking? Now, again, I'm not diminishing people that are still being victimized by others. Please don't misunderstand me. Um, anyway, uh, forgiveness is about setting yourself free from the pain of the past, not pre- not pretending that the behavior was somehow okay. And that's what I'm saying. It's about setting yourself free. We're not, we're not pretending that nothing was wrong or that the bad things didn't happen. We're just saying, I have to be free from this. Um, so we have to let go of those past grudges against others and against ourselves. Um, I love this one. This is something that uh, I've worked with over and over in life. Uh, gratitude. Have to learn to be thankful and gracious and, and, and grateful for things so that we actually look at life with a positive lens. Um, and she gives some ideas here. She said the four keys to gratitude, being successful with gratitude. First of all, little and often. Uh, so it's just the little things. And be thankful a lot. So multiple times throughout your day, stop and be thankful. Um, so as it pertains to imposter syndrome, when you're struggling, if it's in your work area or your relationships, find positive things in in those areas to be thankful for and say them out loud. Be very specific uh, about those things that you're being grateful for um, and it's not just a, a matter of thinking something, something, but you have to put emotion behind it because that's where change happens is when we start to associate emotion with what we're discussing. So don't, she says, don't think it, feel it. And then one of her last suggestions is to write it down. Um, we did something a few years ago in my house. I wish we haven't kept up the tradition in the last few years. And I think I'd like to bring it back. Um, a lot of people you know, put up their Christmas tree at different times of the year. I know people that have it up for months and months. Our tradition when I was a kid was it was put up the day after Thanksgiving and it stayed up until New Year's Day. That's kind of been the way we've done it in our house. Um, A few years ago, I put up my tree at the beginning of November, but I didn't decorate it for Christmas. I decorated it for Thanksgiving. And next to it, I had a little table with a book on it. And every day, I encouraged my children to write one thing in that book that they were thankful for all the way up through Thanksgiving, rather than spending Thanksgiving day doing it. We did it for the entire month. And I loved it because it created a positive environment. And it reminded me that there's so very much to be thankful for. Um, So so then she does go into the idea of how does gratitude help with imposter syndrome? Um, I'm just going to read these really quickly. Daily gratitude helps to shift your brain's focus from what's going wrong to what's going well. Um, it it can actually boost your confidence by reducing self judgment. It can help you to recalibrate your internal referencing system, so you spot your strengths and you feel more confident about sharing them. So it's it shifts it shifts your perspective to the positives rather than the negatives. Uh, it gives you a healthy form of resilience rather than bounce back. Um, and she talks about that. I'm sorry I didn't get into that. So you'll have to read the book to talk about that some more. Um, and it helps you to feel safer in taking inspired action towards your big vision dreams. So gratitude, very very popular, very very important. Um, she does go into lasting change, and I want to I want to talk about that just really quickly. Um, you know, there's the old idea that a new habit takes 21 days to form. Um, I don't know if that's actually science or not. <laughs> that's just something that's been said a lot of times. Uh, but one sh- one of the quotes she has is, how long does it take to change a habit? It's instant every single time. So in other words, every time you make the decision, it instantaneously makes a change and you just have to do it each and every time. Um, to change a habit we need to get to the point where we are more committed to our dreams than our excuses. So you can apply those however you choose to imposter syndrome. Uh, I'm certainly not minimizing how difficult imposit- imposter syndrome is uh, because I live with it. I, I understand the challenges of it. And a lot of times these seem like very pat answers. I don't believe that they're easy. I just believe that they're effective over the long term. Um so that's the book. Honestly, there's a really a lot more. And of course, that's always the case when we're talking about a book. Um, there's always so much more detail involved than we can actually cover in a, you know, on our podcast. Um, so overall decent book, uh, some good information, some good suggestions. Again, it does lean more towards, um, the business side of things, but I think much of it is applicable to our personal lives, uh, and our relationships and whatnot. So Thanks for hanging out with me and talking about me being an imposter and a fraud. Uh, Thanks for listening to me share my fears about hitting that record button. Um, Looking forward to some other books I'm going to be bringing. I am going to tell you another secret. I am moving across the country. And so um, I feel a little scattered. I hope it didn't come across in this, but it might have. And that's the reason. Uh, Life is very stressful right now. So I have some other good books coming up. Um, but the next couple may just be me, uh, as I am traveling with a laptop and a microphone, uh, not having a soundproof room or a studio in which to record. Um, I feel a little more comfortable not having a guest co-host during this tumultuous time, but we'll see. It may it may be only one more after this one we'll see, uh, but it's a big move. I'm looking forward to it, and yet I'm also very sad and and frustrated and annoyed and all of the emotions that go along with the stress that's involved in this kind of a an endeavor. Um, but thanks for hanging out with me. It's been a pleasure. Of course, as always, go read a book. Bye, everybody.